Spotlight On is brought to you by Light, the technology platform reimagining e-commerce for live events. You can learn more about Light at light.com forward slash partnerships. That is L-Y-T-E dot com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. This week, the spotlight shines on Jeff Slate, musician, songwriter, Sirius XM volume host, contributor to major publications including Esquire, Wall Street Journal, The New Yorker, and Rolling Stone. He's a book and liner note author, and now a guest of this podcast. Jeff represents something of the platonic ideal for a guest of Spotlight On. He has informed opinions, a definite point of view, and he pulls no punches. We left a lot on the table to chop through, and Jeff is definitely a finalist to be our first repeat guest sometime down the road. I look forward to it. In the meantime, hit up jeffslatehq.com for his latest work and all the ways to follow him. Enjoy. What are we talking about today, Lawrence? Well, first of all, thank you for making time to do this. Of course. And um, I think what I would like to talk about today is... Um, Jeff Slate and the many aspects thereof and the many facets thereof, the jewel that is Jeff Slate. And bon vivant. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. And uh, as I was digging in to prep Uh-oh. for our conversation. You're like, holy shit, what hasn't this guy done? No. I, I uncovered all kinds of tawdry. No, uh, this is not 60 Minutes. Um, you know, I've been on TMZ. You do know that, right? Did yeah, you what, did you, what, what did you do to earn that? I dragged Paul Simon and I became... The oh, most yeah, hated yeah. man on Twitter for yeah for the weekend that Trump was on vacation or something during, <laughs> during his residency. And I was just waiting for him to come back from playing golf so I could be the <laughs> not the most hated man on Twitter. I'm like, where is this guy when you need him? Anyway. All right. Uh, I know that story. I know the I know the Paul Simon story, but do me a favor. Tell tell, tell the it. listener that story because it actually well, that story sits at the cross. We started. Yeah, we've started. We've started. Okay, right. that's that story sits at the crossroads of something I want to talk to you about. So if you could okay. tell us what happened with with your Paul Simon kerfluffle. Okay, so so the short version is, I wrote a piece about how Paul Simon selling his catalog was advantageous to Paul Simon and good for him. Mm-hmm. However, in a hundred years, when when people are studying history. He will be a footnote. He will be forgotten because history is a blunt instrument and it only has room for, you know, who do we know of sort of Beethoven's contemporaries or Mozart's contemporaries or Van Gogh's contemporaries. We, we only know the big broad strokes. So, yeah, of course, if you're a Civil War buff, you know all the generals and you know all the, the sort of, you know, side, side roads to the, to the story. But for people studying the latter half of the 20th century, they're going to know the Beatles because they're the Beatles and they represent so much for that period. And they'll know Dylan because, I mean, I don't think we know why they'll know Bob Dylan because there's so much to his, you know, his artistic path. But I threw Dylan in there because he had just sold his catalog. I I really think it's the Beatles. I mean, maybe David Bowie maybe Bob Dylan, but really it's going to be the Beatles because they're, you know, more than Elvis, more than Sinatra, more than all those people, they are easily digestible as a pop culture historical reference for the every person who will be reading history in a hundred years or 200 years or 300 years. Plus those songs and what they did will last. It just inarguably will last. We're here 60 years later and people are still listening to Love Me Do. By not by a stretch, their best song, but people, you know, it's it's got a bajillion strains. So what I was saying is, you know, whatever his and and I lost friends over this that I care about because they read the headlines or the snark on Twitter. They didn't really dig into what I was saying, which is Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, maybe not Joni Mitchell, because you know for various reasons, but. 
Leonard Cohn, Paul Simon, all these people, when history is written or when history is assimilated in, in, in a very long time, we're all dead and buried. Nobody's going to know or care who Paul Simon is or was because it's not an easily digestible story. And his songs, while important to a certain generation and to a certain moment in time, and inarguably he's written some mega, mega songs. I mean, you know, I, I'm not taking any of that away from him. Um, he, he will be, you know, he'll be a footnote to, to, the, to the bigger, bigger picture of the times. Now, because editors, that was an assignment. I didn't choose that story. It was something that my editor at NBC came to me after he sold his catalog and said, we, you know, he had come up in other conversations because, you know, he's, he's not the best guy in the world. And so she's like, I bet you have some thoughts. So I wrote a piece and in the editorial process, it went, we went back and forth a few times and editors being editor, she added in the bit about him beating Edie Brickell many years ago and, you know, whatever, which I thought was, you know, not really relevant to the story at hand. Okay. He's a bad guy. You want to talk about how he's stolen from Los Lobos or any number of artists over the course of his career and appropriated that for himself as his own work and basically said, fuck you, sue me to those people. You're nobodies and it will ruin your career. Yeah, sure. I think that's relevant to the fact that when history is written, the good guys don't, you know, the, the Beatles are going to be written about because they made all the right choices, whether, you know, peace and love and, you know, be, you know, they didn't care about gender affiliation or your, you know, they didn't care about any of that stuff. They were so forward thinking in so many ways, even amongst their peers, they stood this test of time because of a lot of ancillary things. But anyway, I, I thought those things were a distraction. And then of course the piece went up and it was, you know, I've forgotten what the headline was, but it was, it was terrible. You know, it was, it was one of those clickbaity headlines. <laughs> and most people did not read the piece because the people who did the, the, read the piece, you know, had thoughtful responses. Most people read the headline or read just the Twitter share from some outraged artist, musician, you know, the guy from fucking who created billions was dragging me. I mean, it's like, you know, you've got like a million Twitter followers. I'm just a guy in my fucking, you know, home office. And, you know, and, and so it became a thing on Twitter to drag me. And, and I got, I got notes from a lot of people who said, we agree with you, but, but we're not willing remotely to defend me because they didn't want to be, you know, catch the shrapnel. And I didn't really care. And so I'm a host on Sirius. They wanted me to come on. There was, you know, it, I got death threats. I got, when I say 10,000 direct messages and emails, I'm not even exaggerating. The hate mail was off the charts. For at least a week, my inbox was just full. And, and full of the kind of hateful, vitriolic kind of stuff that, you know, it, it named, it named by name, my teenage daughter and where she goes to school. Mm. Like, you know, NBC security got involved. The president of NBC was contacting people to go, Hey, lay off my fucking freelancer, please. You know, it was just like, there was talk of me going on the today show. And I'm like, no, if, if we just let this go, it disappears. This is today's story tomorrow a little bit, and within 48, 72 hours, it will all be forgotten. Now, the internet is a thing. There was a, there's an, in, there's a YouTube personality who, <laughs> who, did a, who did a one hour special on what a boomer asshole I am. He didn't even do the littlest bit of research into my biography, my credits, my, he just dragged me on his YouTube channel. Because that's how you get views and that's how you get subscribers. And of course, his followers being of a sort of, I'm going to get more hate mail now, being of sort of a Trumpy nature, you know, middle-aged white guys with an anger Reactionary, yeah, yeah. Went after me. Then it like, it all kicked off again. And, and the editor was like, I'm really sorry about that. She didn't have to deal with it at all. But, you know, security 
were wanted to see my emails and wanted to know what kind of death threats I was getting. You know, they take it very seriously when you start yeah. when when they start naming like your kids' names and you know, be ashamed if something happened. She must be ashamed of you, that daughter at named so and so at such and such college. I was like, holy fuck, these people are unhinged. It's a it's you don't even know Paul Simon. I did get notes from people who are friends with Paul Simon that I, you know I'm mutually mutual friends with who were pissed off. And I'm like, that's legit. You know, you took umbrage with the fact that it it veered a little into the personal. But I also look, I've had some dealings with him firsthand, and that was part of what I was writing about. And but the bigger story was sorry boomers you know you can't tell somebody that their childhood hero is going to be an irrelevancy in 100 or 200 years because what does that say about them or their life so that's what people were reacting to right yeah there's a lot invested in that artist there's a, there's a lot invested and and the whole boomer complex about their heroes being untouchable and you know whatever so it was a colorful you know, a couple of days, week, it dissipated pretty quickly. I never, it's funny, I have this ability to disassociate criticism in a way that no matter how personal the people were getting with me about my music, about, you know, whatever it was, they were my writing, I, you know, I just didn't give a fuck. I, I don't know why, because, my, you know, people around me were saying like, checking in, like, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. It's just, you know, that's the internet in 2022. Did it benefit you in any way? Were you able to leverage it for any benefit in terms of profile? I didn't even try. I just kind of let it go. And yes, sure. Look, I could have probably parlayed that onto not the Today Show, but the follow-up show, the Hoda show, you know, the Vicky Lee and Hoda show, or or I could have gone on. I could have done the explanation lap that people do when these kerfuffles happen. But it was like, I didn't fucking care. I moved on, you know, so the next one, I dragged Eric Clapton and rightly fucking so. These are genuinely bad guys. So I don't have any qualms about having done it. But I also wasn't going to capitalize it uh, on it in any meaningful way because it was just a fucking assignment. I didn't, you know, it was just, I didn't even, you know, it, the funny thing was, it was something that was assigned to me. Normally, I go to an editor and say, I have something I really care about that I want to write about. And because it's a passion of mine, they inevitably say yes, because they feel like you bring a lot to that. You'll sell the story on social media. You'll talk about it on podcasts. And it, it you know, they become some of these pieces I've written have become evergreen because, you know, I get asked about them all the time. That's great for, you know, especially a lot of my pieces on Esquire. They live outside of Esquire's small universe because they touch on these evergreen, you know, the obituaries I, uh, I've done for, you know, Greg Allman and Tom Petty and Leonard Cohen. These are things that people quote, you know, they're like in Wikipedia articles and stuff like that. And it's like, you know, that drives traffic. That's what that's what they love or, or the art or the interviews I've done with. You know, Jimmy Page or Noel Gallagher, who are great interviews and say things that people, you know, write about on the Internet or, yeah. or Robert Plant, for that matter. And, and so they, the pieces tend to live outside of the moment in time when the person was promoting their latest X. Um, but no, I, you know, I mean, sure, I, I could have done that. It's, it's kind of not my style. I, I feel like I built my brand on. And, and that was the other thing, <laughs> just to backtrack a little bit, that when people were criticizing my writing, I thought to myself, you're a keyboard warrior. You know, yeah. I, I've, I've written, you know, and I don't mean this in an egotistical way, but I have legitimate credits to my name. You know, The New Yorker, The Wall Street Journal or, or, or Esquire, Rolling Stone, wherever. Somebody thinks I'm a decent writer, right? So I'm going to feel like whatever I feel, because I'm my absolute worst critic, whatever I feel about a specific piece, I've, I've built that career. People were criticizing my music. Well, I certainly didn't say I was as great as Paul Simon, because that would be fucking ludicrous, right? I'm Jeff Slate. He's Paul Simon. 
those things are, are they're different for a, a reason, right? I'm just a B-level guy who plays clubs for, you know, maybe three or 500 people at a pop and he can do whatever he fucking wants. So you're going to say my songs aren't as great as the sounds of silence. Thanks. You know, like, I, I, you know, even my mom would agree with you. So, you know, it, it was just the stupidity involved didn't lend itself to me doing that kind of <clears throat> Marv Albert, you know, kind of, well, let me explain myself. You know, fuck you. It was just, it, it was giving, it was also giving air to people that I feel like we give way too much air to. The guy, I, ke- I still, because people still discover it on YouTube because he has millions of followers, I still get um, hate mail from this YouTube followers guys because they are that reactionary bunch. And it's like, you know, they're barely English, these, these, and they're from English speakers. They're barely English and they're just, you know, it's like not only did they not read the piece, they didn't even watch his whole video. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's like, just, why just to I... the part that could get them good and outrage and they step away and channel the outrage. Right. Yeah. And so, and so do you want to know how many people I responded to like actually took the time to respond to literally zero friends, famous people who were took umbrage because they were friends with Paul, you know, you know, crazy people on the other end of a keyboard People wanted to interview me for their pieces, responding to my piece. The TMZ people wrote about the kerfuffle, the, you know, whatever. I responded to literally zero of them because fuck it. And sure enough, it went away. Yeah. Because that's the internet. Well, so that sort of puts in relief for me. One of the questions I had coming into this conversation, which was, is there ever or do you experience ever a conflict between those two parts of your professional life? Does your work as an artist and your work as a journalist ever create dissonance for each other or any kind of complications for each other? Well, yes and no. Uh, I mean, the, the short answer is no. But from a professional standpoint, if you were my agent... I mean, there goes your touring gig with Paul Simon. <laughs> exactly. And, and, and that's the thing. You know what? This isn't... What I say when I'm on Sirius, because I'm, you know, my my personality on satellite radio is curmudgeon, you know, lovable curmudgeon, maybe, but mostly just curmudgeon. You know, there aren't enough John Lennons or Joe Strummers or whatever in the world saying, you know what, that sucks. That guy's an asshole. That guy should be taken down a notch. And maybe I'm right and maybe I'm wrong. And I'm not saying I'm John Lennon or Joe Strummer. What I'm saying is there are too many people who have been corporatized into being the blandest version of musician, artist, rock star, writer possible. They don't want to upset advertisers. They don't want to upset other musicians. They don't want to upset. Fuck it. Say what you think. Stand for something and say that. And if you can't defend it, if Paul Simon were in this room right now, I would absolutely have the argument with him. And I bet if I was able to get a word in edgewise, I would be able to convince him that I'm right, that in 200 years time, nobody's gonna know or care who Paul Simon is. Now, I'm not a soothsayer, I can't read the future, but if you look at the way history evolves and history books are written, they're top line, they're, they're the most basic version of historical events written by the winners. The winners in this case being the Beatles. You know, they, they, they have so many people who wave their flag for them. They are going to be the, the people who are written about in, I, in two or 300 years. It's just something I wanted to, that you were saying before, I want to come back to, and it ties to your But, 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 but I want to, I just oh. want to finish that thought too, because, sure. because I, I think if you stand for something, if, look, you can be a milk toast version of a rock and roll star and you, you can create, oh, Dave Grohl is a perfect example. And I'm happy to take this on with his millions, 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 millions of fans. But that music that the Food Fighters make is absolutely worthless. It's barely melodic, but it's worthless music. It's not going to last. 
Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and millions of fans. I get it. But that's because the bar is so fucking low right now. He's a nice guy. I have no doubt that Dave Grohl is a nice guy. But being obsequious doesn't make you a great artist. It's just sort of, you know, it's the sort of, you know, the Archies of the of the aughts. You know, I mean, I, I just I don't. I've never listened to those kind of artists and I'm never going to listen. Yeah, if rock and roll had a rotary club, he'd be the president of the rock and roll rotary club. It's a great job. It's an, he's an advocate. He's the, he's, he's a brand ambassador for rock and roll. Yeah. And, and my best friend who's, who's buddies with him, you know, I'm sure has a, 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 a completely different opinion and he's a really opinionated guy, but you know, you get co-opted by the corporatized nature of everything. And if you say something negative about somebody like him, you lose access. Well, you know what? The people I interview, I, I go there and I respect what they've done. And I write about them with respect. And I think this goes to your point. I think I'm seen as a fellow. I, I know because artists have told me, you know, I'm seen as a fellow traveler. I understand what they're talking about. I write about their careers with the empathy that a regular rock and roll journalist oftentimes can't. I've, you know, I've, I've done those all night or road, you know, from going from fucking Leeds to London or whatever it is. And the van breaks down in the middle of winter and you're out of gas or whatever the fuck it is. Um, you know, I've, I've experienced stuff that, you know, 99% of rock journalists Although it's changed a little bit. There are some people who do both things like I do now, um, you know, have never experienced. And that creates a different dynamic between me and the people I talk to. And so, you know, I also am not going to, you know, Dave Grohl's been promoting. They've got a movie. He's had a book. He's had an album. He's had, you know, a million things that he that he's promoted in the last six months. I know his publicist, I could have easily interviewed him, but the reason when I interview somebody, it's because I'm really behind what they've done. And, and, and not just because I like the person personally, although that oftentimes helps, it's because I really believe, like I went in to interview Jimmy Page and I told him almost right off the bat that I'm not a Zeppelin guy. I'm not a Zeppelin guy. Yardbirds and some of the other stuff he's done, but that wasn't my band. That was my brother's band. And we started talking about bootlegs and he asked me how many Led Zeppelin bootlegs I had. And because they're on a hard drive, I said 256. And he said, how are you not a Led Zeppelin fan, but you have 256 bootlegs? And I said, because you're fucking Led Zeppelin. I, it wouldn't be, if I walked in here and didn't know literally everything you've done, this, that's my library. That's the backbone of rock and roll. If I don't know everything about Led Zeppelin as a guy coming into the room to interview Jimmy Page, I'm not worth anything. And he was like, we had a two hour conversation about bootlegs. You know, we, we really, we hit it off because I, I respected what he had achieved and what he was able to accomplish in his lifetime as an artist, which very few people do, even if I wasn't gonna go home and put on Led Zeppelin four. Your, your comment earlier about, well, a few things about the Beatles and about boomers. So to me, I, I, I think about the Beatles. And thank ever, you very much for reigniting this conversation. Yeah, well, <laughs> we're going to leave it behind now. Um, no, we're not. Every few years, the Beatles do something that completely surprise me and bring them not just back to relevancy, but back to the forefront of the pop culture conversation. And I remember, I remember I, I'm going to get the chronology wrong, but just as examples, sure. um, when the Beatles embraced rock band, the video game, that seemed like a major deal. When love uh, premiered uh, in Vegas with circus mashup Beatles. Yep. Yeah. Well, these things they do that are incredibly culturally relevant. They do it at a higher quality than everybody else because everybody and his brother at this point has a making of behind the scenes epic album documentary right only the beatles do one that's <laughs> hours long and we all watch it and talk about it um so all preface to say the good and the bad in this for me from where i come from the boomers will not leave the stage and it's crowded out in my opinion i think our generation and 
I can really get a chip on my shoulder about if I want to get worked up about it, but like they don't retire. They don't leave the professional world. They don't leave the public world. They're not leaving politics. And it's having a very, very detrimental effect. Absolutely. And then we have a very smart, driven, frankly, very interesting generation breathing down our necks. Um, and to me, like I, as a, you know, as a person of a certain age, I start to think like, I'll be, I'll be okay to step aside. Cause I'm really interested in what the, what people are doing now. Um, so that's the negative, but you know, the Beatles in a way are the, they are the typical boomer representation They're now, <coughs> yeah. now they're much more justified in it. And it's, there's a, you know, I'm not, but I'm not, maybe that, you know, we had in the mid nineties, we had the anthology and it was amazing and they reunited and they released their outtakes and the documentary was just, you know, the first hand thing. And, and it wasn't a bunch of talking heads. It was just them and the book, you know, like, you know, sort of added to all of that. But what happened after that was literally every single pretender Beatles had to release their outtakes and their book and their documentary and their most. I remember number were, ones, every band did a version of number ones for a while. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> so because they're all sort of, everybody wants to be in league with the Beatles or, or at least ride their coattails from a marketing standpoint, you know, it's part of its band intra-band egos driving it and part of its management who are just like ka-ching you know we'll put out a greatest hits and everybody will buy it you know because they bought the Beatles one they're gonna buy if they even sell you know the, that Beatles one has sold like 30 or 40 million copies worldwide so so if you can sell one percent of that you know ten percent of that if you're a also ran group you know you're the fucking Hollies or some bullshit band like that then sure. And, and yes, I'm calling out Holly's fans. So, you know, the, it's, it's, you know, it's, so you're right that, but, but there, there is justice in the world because you know what? They're all dying. And I don't mean the artists who look, many of the artists we could list as pretenders to the throne from that period. I love to, and I listen to, and they're my heroes as well. However, the, the fans are, you know, they're only going to live forever, uh, only going to live so long. They're not going to live forever. And so, you know, interestingly, Neil Young's been in the news because he pulled his music from Spotify. The, the, the part of the story nobody wrote about, and, and look, it's, it was a great thing and a great moment, because it brought attention to the story. But my initial reaction was, I went to Neil Young's Spotify streams, and he didn't have, he doesn't, nobody listens to him. You know, young people, you know, the boomers don't have Spotify by and large, and young people, yeah, they listen, but they didn't listen in any meaningful way. You know, there weren't, you know, he had that new album with Crazy Horse, there was only maybe one song that was over a million streams. Most of them were in the low hundred thousands. That's a major artist who just released a new album. Those things get a million streams just off the bat, you know, like Jimi Hendrix re-releases get, you know, of just bullshit outtakes get a million streams. So, um, so it was, it was his name and that it was a conversation starter that was important, but, because the boomers are so prevalent in the media and on Twitter and all these other things. And it, and it was a cause people could get behind because it's such a fractured time right now. Um, and Joe Rogan's such an easy villain, you know, he's, he's just such an easy villain. But the, the underlying thing about that is that, you know, people don't listen really to Neil Young. They just don't, not in the numbers that they used to even five or 10 years ago. Now that's a bad thing because he's Neil Young, but it, what it also means is whatever's happening in your social media feed is not necessarily reality. Yeah. You know, yeah. that I mean, young kids, young kids who are cherry picking the music they listen to, 
they know who Neil Young is and they're, 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 you know, after the gold rush is on their playlist or decade is on their playlist, but not much beyond that, you know? So, um, well, in a country where the, you know, the number one album sells 80 or a hundred thousand copies in a week in a country of 360 or some odd million people, right. um, the, the it's very difficult to have a clear conversation about sort of like cultural impact versus media noise versus like you're saying the who has yeah. access to the megaphone yeah. well look just, there, there will what's interesting is and, and this is i'm saying this i'm thinking this in real time so i i it's maybe wildly wrong but i wonder if there will be a tipping point when the boomers as a cultural reference just sort of drop off the face of the earth as a conversation that they won't be controlling the media and the stories they won't be the big name artists anymore and they won't be and what i wonder is will there then be such a huge generational shift that our generation from sort of bowie to the clash and maybe a little bit later than that just kind of get lost because it will be the nostalgia will then be for like oasis and nirvana you know it will just sort of leapfrog to that generation who are so adept at the internet and nostalgia and in not a, not a nostalgic way. I mean, I, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a contrary, but it's like, you know, younger people talk about, you know, my, my stepdaughter talks about Liam Gallagher, not as like a historical figure who in many ways he is, you know, she, she, she likes his style likes it and that's the 90s but to them that's a really you know that that's it's current and yet it's just part of the firmament so yeah. it'll be interesting to see do, do, do the people we loved and i'm you know obviously bowie and the clash will not get you know be forgotten they're huge mega um touchstones in in pop culture history but there were so many people t-rex you know are t-rex who deserve to be remembered just gonna kind of be like the Bay City Rollers to kids? You know, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I think the artists that reached their status, superstar or otherwise, between, between say 70 and 90, they're the ones I think their legacies are the most at risk, right? It was before the real media explosion and the sort of globalized media. Um, drowned out to a large extent by this sort of long the long arm of the boomers um i mean i the clash is a tough one to think about um because i i don't know if i just give them more importance because of what they mean to me but i don't i don't really know anybody who talks about them <laughs> you know, it's, it's, aware it's, it's them. funny because i've 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 had a book in the works uh, I know all I know all the guys and everybody in the circle. I was part of the sort of New York Clash posse f f toward the end, and and when I was a very young guy, and I've kept in touch with everybody. And I Joe Strummer lived in my neighborhood for a while, and you know it was it was they just meant so much to me. But yeah. I've never really pulled the trigger on writing that book because it feels like. Yeah, there's a constituency for it, and but it's a lot of work, and I want to write it, and I feel like it's important, but I also want it to be read. I don't want to do all that work and then, you know, have the, you know, couple thousand real diehard faithful buy it and not have it reach the the intersection of, you know, sort of kids who are discovered and and look. The, the, the clash have not been well served by, you know, their legacy has not been well served for any number of reasons. They just haven't tended it. Joe dying really was tough on the band because he was, I mean, he, he was a front guy. He was the, he was the cheerleader. He was the advocate. The other guys don't really have the same vested interest in doing it. And their management has been all over the place with, with the way they've handled it. So, and I know all these people, I'm going to get hate mail for this, but, um, but the numbers don't lie. The, the, the Clash sort of do good streaming numbers, but could do much better. They could be so part of the pop culture conversation. They're, they're, there's always politics, 
culture, you know, sort of whatever. I mean, you know, they were, they were the, I remember when walking around New York city in the summer of 1981, when Mag7, Magnificent Seven was everywhere. And to my young, you know, very young suburban bred ears, I wanted to know what that music was. So I discovered, you know, by, by way of Mag7, hip hop and rap. And so by the time I moved to New York City in 84-ish, I'd already, I already knew, you know, I'd seen a bunch of the, you know, a bunch of these artists and was part of the scene when I got here. It was like, it was so, you know, that they were the gateway drug to so many other kinds of, you know, politics and culture. And, you know, so, um, so I think, I think they, they're one of those stories that I think it will take history to shake out, you know, will they, be remembered because they were so remarkable. They were just so different than everybody else. Sort of the way that, you know, David Bowie 10 years ago was beloved, but not on the level that after his death, everybody and his brother realized, oh my God, I love David Bowie too. It's not just the weirdos from my high school class. I I love that music as well. Oh my God, that soundtrack, my life too. And there was this out pouring whereas now everybody everybody identifies as a david bowie fan whether you know they were late to the party or not and that's fine because what does that mean for his legacy in 50 or 100 years well that means the kids who are in their teenage years now when they're old talking about this guy who changed their lives because they identified with him he will still be relevant yeah for sure for sure anyway we're way we're we're like a half hour in and we're we haven't covered anything but like (laughs) well let's uh let's let me me pivot to something else for a second you mentioned uh when you moved to new york how aware were you of some of the different musical scenes that were percolating at that time i think about you know there was sort of the downtown no wave stuff going on and uh sort of like that what what evolved into like the knitting factory and all that what what was where were you playing, basically? What what playground were you romping around in musically? You know, ironically, I gravitated toward the sort of dance hip-hop crowd because it was... And I'm going to get into hot water because I'm going to paint with broad brushes here. But my experience in the punk scene, even before I moved here, because I was in bands and we would come here and we'd play CBs and wherever, the, the people I met were, were not, you know, you know, I always come across on these podcasts as an Anglophile because I love The Clash and I love Paul Weller and The Jam and, you know, whatever. But the reality was there was nobody I met mm-hmm. or saw that struck me as having that quality of artistic determination. And the ones who did, when you'd meet them and talk to them, there wasn't much there. And if there was something there, they were fucking racist. They were just like small-minded guys from Queens or whatever. And that broke my fucking heart over and over and over because you know we didn't have youtube or social media back then we heard about a band we caught a fanzine in the local record store we were all hot to trot and then we went to see them and they were kind of like oh they're not really what i expected or kind of okay and all these people were accessible the new york punk scene was you know pretty accessible and then you'd talk to them and they they always 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 disappointed Oh, I, I can't remember being knocked out by somebody and being like, I got to meet this guy and then going to meet him and have him be like, you know, blow me away with their, you know, I'm, I remember so vividly the first time I met Joe Strummer, it like, it changed my fucking life. He was listening to Charlie Parker and he was just, I mean, he talked about a lot about Woody Guthrie, but he talked a lot about Charlie Parker randomly. 
And what did we do? We went to the record store and stole, you know, mind you, because we were kids, a bunch of Charlie Parker records. And we're like, holy fuck, Charlie Parker's amazing. I don't know if our little 13-year-old, 14-year-old brains knew what Charlie <laughs> Parker was doing, but Joe said Charlie was cool. Joe said, you know, Grandmaster Flash and Furious Five were cool. He said Curtis Blow was somebody to check out. He was like, you know, I was at those shows where those guys got booed. I was young enough to look around and go, what the fuck are these people booing at? These guys are awesome. And, and go to the record stores in Times Square. There's a Colony Records or wherever, where there, or just up the street, there was a hip hop store. And they had everything. And it was just like, you could grab, I didn't even know who these people were. You'd say to the guy behind the counter, what should I get? He'd give you two or three 12 inches. You'd take them home and they would blow your fucking mind. The punk bands weren't doing that for me or the post-punk bands or the mm -hmm. new wave or whatever. And, and a lot of it had to do, a lot of it had to do with, I, I mean, a lot of it had to do with the fact that I grew up loving soul records and there weren't a lot of good rhythm sections. The, the, the drums and bass were always a hurdle for me as a listener. And then the songwriting was, you know, sometimes it was interesting, but the melodies were like, okay, well, we're going to play as punky as possible, because it became a brand. We're going to play as punky as possible, so we're going to bury that melody, and we're not going to give you anything. Meanwhile, the hip-hop guys were leading the way. They were writing stuff that was like endlessly tuneful, that drew you in. It was fun. It was fun. And they also had something to fucking say. So I remember... There used to be a club here called Negril where Don Letts, who's the filmmaker, who's the DJ who introduced The Clash to, to um, reggae dub and you know all that other stuff back in London at the Roxy. He used to DJ, um, I think it was Thursday nights here on Second Avenue. And you'd go and it was, look, it was a cool scene as a 14 or 15 year old kid to be led into. But I think about it now and all the people who were there were people that I still like, even though I'm, I've lost touch with most of them. But like the Beastie Boys were there and Rick Rubin was there and a lot of the young, you know, Run DMC and a lot of the young hip hop guys were there. The Big Audio Dynamite guys who were, you know, came from The Clash were, would be there. Those are all people who were like seekers. You know, they, they were like, they, they were what I imagine you know, the, the speakeasy or Ronnie Scott's was like in the 60s, you know, they were the bag of nails. It was, yeah. it was this very kind of like, I heard this new cool thing. It didn't matter if it was fucking speed metal or, you know, a white label dub record from Jamaica. Don would put it on and everybody would listen. And if you went to the rock and roll clubs, that scene was small and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And look, the reality is the people who were part of that New York punk scene now are broke and complaining about how New York isn't the same as it was. And the guys that I mentioned from that Negril scene are like, you know, rule the world. They rule the world. So, so you know, I, I, I... Can we look at that for a second though? So. I mean, when, when hearing you, speak this is not it, what you plan to talk about. No, okay. no, it's it's wonderful. The um, <laughs> when, what hearing you speak on it, I, I a few things come to mind for me. One is hip hop. I think of it as an inclusive genre, and not right. just in the modern DEI sense of the word, but like yeah. all that mattered when you put on a record or you're going to sample something is was it good? Yeah. Did it move you? Did it kick? Yeah. It wasn't about weeding out music, whereas a lot of rock scenes are they define their authenticity by like some kind of purity. And is it fast enough? Is it hard enough? Is it bluesy enough? Is it twangy enough? Whatever the whatever the qualifier is. And after a while, it just gets so inward and navel gazy. Um, I can I think the scenes peter out or they just stay parochial and marginalized. Is there something to that or my full shit? No, no, I, th I think you're right. I think. Look, I'm, I, I, I was, as you were saying the words, I was identifying because certainly when I was a teenager, I was against more things than I was for. I couldn't find stuff to listen to because it would inevitably, the people would disappoint me or it was bloated or it was, but I was, 
I was so angry because, I mean, the, the, the rec, there was a point, I was in a band when I was about 12 or 13 years old. And, and I, was a, I was like a Beatle fan. I was like obsessed. Beatles, solo, whatever. And I was, and, and one weekend, one of the guys in the band, they were all a little bit older than me. They were like 14 or 15 and I was 12 or 13. And we were terrible in a basement, drinking beer, playing, you know, bad versions of Lucille or whatever. So I, I knew, I, let, let, me, let me go back that I, I loved, loved, loved the 50s rockers. Chuck Berry, Little Richard changed my fucking world, you know, Buddy Holly and Roy Orbison and Elvis, you know, those were like, and the Beatles, that was kind of, that was kind of it for me. And I had also, because I had a, a brother-in-law who was a, a session trumpet player, would inherit just whatever records, you know, he'd have to learn stuff and then he'd pass them along to me. I loved, loved, loved sort of late 60s, early 70s soul. So I had a really formidable collection of like the Isley Brothers and, you know, Psychedelic Shack and, you know, Marvin Gaye and Sam Cooke and, and but, but deeper stuff too, like a lot of stack stuff and VJ stuff and specialty stuff. It was like a really, really weird kid growing up in suburban Connecticut. I mean, my friend, you know, my friends were listening to Kiss and Alice Cooper and I was like, man, did you hear that live Isley Brothers record? And they were like, who the fuck is, you know, the spinners are fucking the Delphonics, brother. They're like the thing, you know, or the Philly sound or any of that. Although the Philly sound was a little too polished for me. I liked it, you know, kind of. Anyway, so this guy walked into rehearsal one day and gave me the Who Sings My Generation, which was the American version of My Generation, by the way, the first record. Um, I think All Mod Cons by The Jam, and There Are But Four Small Faces by The Small Faces. And, it, and, and around the same time, a teacher gave me a copy of Village Green Preservation Society and Kingside. And those five records Shit. That's a changed my fucking life. Because what I realized was the American artists who were all over my radio, my AM radio, were playing, they weren't, they didn't have, it took a bunch of English art school guys playing their version of soul music with loud guitars for me to go, oh, that's my music right there. Yeah. The, the Small Faces, that's my fucking band. And, or the, you know, that early who that was just sort of, you know, just off the charts, cool and, and maximum R&B. Um, and so, and the jam too. And so I've, I've always measured everything by, by that, because those, those guys didn't have to contend with the original sin of race that we did. So that so many of our artists, even though, they may not have been racist themselves, but they were, they grew up in this American culture of ours that is, it's silos. Those genres in music were created. Talk to, John Baptiste talks about this much more intelligent than I, intelligently than I do, but genres, genres were created to keep things in their boxes. You know, if we could just listen to anything, I mean, the, the old BBC or Radio Luxembourg, they played fucking anything. Yeah. We always had, it was, there was a white country station, and there was a black blues station. Nobody listened to the black blues station. That was like, you know, except Bob Dylan under his pillow in Hibbing because he could get it if he dialed it just right on Sunday night and stuck his arm out the window, you know, whatever. You know, so by and large, the, the, for me, a lot of the drummers and bass players, they don't swing the way those guys from England. I've played with American drummers of every age. I play with English drummers of every age. And the English drummers always have a swing that the Americans don't. And I, I like, they're not more soulful than we are, but they just have a broader palette that they're, they're drawing from because the genres weren't as relevant. They were listening to ska and dub and stuff at parties in the eighties when that was 
someone else's music yeah. as far as we were concerned. Yeah. What uh, what role did radio play for you? I'm getting kid? so much hate mail for this podcast. I'm, I'm <laughs> like, I wrote, you know, it's like I wrote a column for NBC once about how Little Richard, who literally changed my life, seeing him, um, was the true king of rock and roll, and but how he scared people oh, in, in America in the fifties, and I got so much hate mail from white people who weren't around in the fifties. They were in the sixties when he had his sort of second burst of fame um, taking issue. Oh, we listened to Richard just like we did Ricky Nelson. First of all, fuck you, you didn't. And second of all, you're, you're misremembering the way things were. You, you're, you're looking at it with that gauzy thing that we Americans love to do to look at the fifties or early sixties before the Beatles came along. Um, Richard was not part of the public consciousness except for his outrageousness or the things he did that almost got him thrown in jail. And, you know, so you remember Tutti Frutti? No, you don't. You remember the Ricky Nelson version, you know, or you remember the Pat Boone version, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, forget race. He was touching all the third rails back then. Race, all the third gender, rails. I, I saw him. So I came late to the party. I, I remember seeing him on the Mike Douglas show one afternoon, <laughs> I was laying on the floor with my little hand, my head in my hands, watching the color TV. And he came on. I can't remember the name of the song, but he did an Aretha Franklin song. It wasn't even one of his big hits, but he was head to toe in sparkly pale blue powder blue outfit with the big hair and the, just, you know, the whole thing at the piano in full Richardness. And I was hooked. I had seen God. And, um, and I remember also that my grandfather was sitting in the recliner behind me, tut-tutting. And that just made me love him more. I didn't have any beef with my grandfather, but I knew what he didn't like made me love it. I, I mean, I was just like, oh my God. It was like, I couldn't. And the thing was, there were no repeats. There was no YouTube. It was a moment in time that I can picture in my mind right now. That like it, it, you know, it changed my life much more than seeing Elvis, who was, you know, because Elvis was, Elvis was like an alien. He was so perfect. He was so beautiful. His voice was so amazing. Even when he got heavy later, he was just so Elvis, you know, whereas Richard was like, you know, what the fuck did I just see? You know, Chuck Berry, they were, they were clearly God who lived on this world where Elvis kind of didn't seem like he lived in this world. Was. Yeah. I don't know that anybody was other than parents, maybe at the very beginning, I don't know that anybody was ever afraid of Elvis, but I, I would reckon the guess there were people that saw little Richard kids and said, Holy shit. <laughs> I'm afraid and captivated like that. That is what you want your rock and roll to be. Yeah. I mean, I remember, I remember my, the brother-in-law I mentioned gave me a cassette with a, it was like a mixtape of stuff he thought I should hear. And I was probably eight or nine years old. And I, I remember it opening, but I, it could be wrong with Crosstown Traffic. And I remember it scaring me on my headphones, right? Like, what the fuck is this? But I was completely won over. Like instantly, like, rewind, hear that again. How many times can I play this before the tape breaks? It just like it, it, it was, you know, and I, I wonder, I mean, we're of a generation where rock and roll music was already accepted as an art form. And so it was like the go-to place for creative or the weirdo kids to go to, to, to sort of find the people that spoke to them and spoke their language and spoke for them. You know, we'd read all the interviews and it was like, I'm picking that guy because he's got my, and Joe Strummer and John Lennon, because they got my point of view and they're, they're all fuck you. And they're all, you know, they're really fucking smart. And I'm, oh my God. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I think we're missing something and I don't, I don't want to be one of those guys who's like, it was better in the old days, but you know, I know talking to my kids that, that they, at, at once see Jimi Hendrix and 
certainly Little Richard and John Lennon or Joe Strummer, as completely historical figures who are also relevant, you know, in some weird way, but they're not, they're not experiencing it in real time. When you have the entirety of the musical database at your fingertips at all times, traveling across town to get to tape your friend's new record and take it home and listen to it on the bus and like, play it over and over and over and, you know, Xeroxing his liner notes at the library because you can't fucking afford the, the $4 record or whatever it is. There's something to that, that experience that um, it, it, in my mind, it has lessened. That's done more to devalue the, the art that we grew up with and love so much than social media and Spotify and piracy and, you know, all that. It's like the mystery of it. Oh, the, I mean, forget it. You talked earlier about um, some of the bands kids liked growing up, but I remember, I can remember like, you know, you'd get these weird glimpses, like Kiss would show up on a random TV show. You know, they'd be on Paul <laughs> Lynn or something and it'd be like, Dinah Shore. Yeah. Right? What yeah. was that that I just saw? Like, and then, I remember and, seeing and to Iggy your point, Pop like then it's gone. Yeah, 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 yeah. Whoever, whoever the booking agents were for those shows were twisted. Putting you know, Iggy it, you Pop know, on Dinosaur is brilliant. <laughs> you know, it was, you know, it was amazing. I, I, I was so obsessive about this stuff. I had a little cassette deck by the TV, yeah, I mean, I and I would record the audio. Yeah. So, like when Hard Day's Night was on TV, I had like my ninety-minute cassette, and I would record the audio of it and listened because we couldn't that was the only chance that saturday afternoon at one o'clock to see a hard day's night for like a year yeah for a year it wouldn't be yeah. out again right yeah yeah what uh where in connecticut are you from new london connecticut okay i'm from i'm from hamden oh yeah so right down 95 from you yeah, uh, yeah. i always tell people it's it's like the mason dixon line new haven's the mason dixon line of uh yankees and boston uh red sox fans. Nah. And the pull goes in, in, in those two directions. It, but more broadly, it's the pull between New York and New England is sort of manifest it, it, in that it, part it, of Canada. It is. And yet, you know, and, and I weirdly, because my dad had family in New York and was a Yankees fan and a Giants fan. And, um, and my sister and my brother-in-law lived here in New York City. And um, we, we were not part of that um, that sort of, New England Patriots, Boston Celtics, Boston Red Sox contingent, much to the chagrin of 90% of my friends, they were all on that. But you know, there's, there's, there's also, there's also very much two New Englands, you know, and, and there's a, there's a really, you know, like my experience with the guys from Queens who were the punk rockers who were like, you know, they were not quality people they were really they were like they came from like anti-busing families and you know it's like a little bit of the south in queens there's a lot of that in new england and it's it's sort of the the unspoken underbelly but there's a lot of small-mindedness there and i was really 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 fortunate to have my dad in particular who that was just not his he was he, he came from this family who had been in, in that area for like literally 400 years. And I think because of that, had the ability like to, to, to feel apart from all that. You know, he didn't, he didn't feel like any of, any of that. Um, there wasn't anybody nipping at his heels. He wasn't a wealthy guy by any stretch, but he just didn't feel like, like he was, he was secure in who he was. He didn't feel like there was anybody going to take his job or anybody who had to be better than, or so he was very, I mean, during World War II, when he was in college, he had a black roommate and a Japanese roommate. That says everything you need to know about my dad, because just the, I remember talking to his, the, the, the black guy who was his roommate in college much later in, in their lives. And he was telling me about how, you know, Nobody would be like, this is 43, 44. Nobody would be this guy, the, the, the Japanese guy's roommate. Just nobody would have him. And my dad, he was like, he's a cool guy. He's fine. 
you know? And, and not only was that a really nice act, it was also something that sent a signal, you know? It, like, I don't think he realized, I don't think any of this was like thought out. He wasn't like a super woke guy or anything, but he just was not a, not judgmental at all in that way. And, and so he wasn't part of that kind of small minded New England contingent that so many of his pals really were. I mean, they really, really were. Um, I want to be cognizant of our time together. I know we're, we're, we're nearing the end of the time we booked, but um, I wanted to ask you, how do you self-identify professionally? Are you journalist slash musician? Are you musician slash journalist? Do you even distinguish? Like, what's your business <laughs> um, card say? <laughs> yeah, who has business cards anymore? We, have, we don't leave the house, so we don't have business cards. No. Um, yeah, it's a really good question. You know, there, there, there are some days when I do more of one thing than the other. Mm-hmm. But the really strange thing is at the end of the year, when I do my taxes, everything is almost, almost always within 10% of being right down the middle. Mm. I don't know how that works out. Now, some years skew, you know, for, for various reasons, but um, yeah, so I, I don't, you know, look, I, I, I came to, I'm, I'm a musician. I think of myself as a songwriter and a musician, and I'll always be that in my mind. I came to writing when I was a teenager because I wanted to meet and write about the guys I admired. And then I stopped doing that. You know, I I did it in high school and college, you know, um, wrote about The Clash and The Who and interviewed Ray Davies from The Kinks and even Kiss, you know, like while I was at college for a little extra pocket money. But I was always a musician first. And then in, in the mid-2000s, late 2000s, uh, I had a couple of kids who I was raising alone. And my band at the time had kind of imploded. Our guitar player had had a um, nervous breakdown while we were on the road. I mean, it was just really a crazy... I mean, we were like, every time we'd tour, it got bigger and bigger and bigger. Things were growing and it felt really good. And then all of a sudden, poof, it kind of you know, imploded, but it, the timing was funny because the kids were happening, the band was imploding and the internet was killing the record business. And so I thought, okay, well, I need to be able to do something to put fucking food on the table. I can't go on the road and I don't really have any solo career. You know, that wasn't a, th- a thought really at the time, the band, I didn't know what was going to happen. And I thought, okay, well, I know, I, I know how to write. And so I started, you know, just writing about music, really more for fun than anything else. Got asked to review the, the then new Mark Lewison biography about um, the Beatles 2012-ish for the New York Times, which, you know, through my agent and, you know, whatever. And for one reason or another, it, they couldn't, there was a conflict and they couldn't, they couldn't run it. But they were like, this is really good. You should, you know, get your agent to shop this around. And she hit on Esquire and I did, they loved it and published it. And they were like, what else do you have? And so the only thing I could think of was, I know a lot of musicians. So if I put feelers out, I bet I can do interviews with some pretty big names. So right after the Beatle, um, Beatle biography I reviewed, I, I interviewed Ringo because through, I, you know, I knew his son through Pete Townsend because I'd worked with Pete. Um, and so I was able to get to Ringo's people and interview Ringo. And so, and then pretty shortly after that, I wrote a, a piece about Bob Marley because I knew some people in the clash circle who had some connections and whatever, and then interviewed Jimmy Page and Elton John. So it, like within a six month period, I had these formidable clips and, and then it just kind of started to happen. And it was really good because at the same time I was, you know, building this solo career. And so, you know, a lot of it was just, it worked hand in hand. 
you know, they, they, I, I was never a guy when I was young and certainly in the late eighties and early nineties. And I was a musician. Like that was all I did. My friends were musicians and playwrights and actors and voiceover guys and blah, 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 blah. blah. And there was a point where my, my manager was trying to get me to do voiceovers and he was also trying to wanted me to audition for VH1. <laughs> both of both of which I dipped my toe in, but they were disastrous. And and um because I just couldn't see beyond, you know, you're young, you 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 have tunnel vision. You know, you don't you don't want I didn't want to be one of those guys who was like doing student films and doing this and doing writing a fanzine and writing it's like Jesus Christ, you know, it's like I, I can barely manage the one thing. But now, you know, I see, particularly in the gig economy and, and in this pop culture moment, if you have a couple of things that you do well, I'm not saying you should just take on a bunch of stuff just because you can. Um, but like, I, you know, I do serious, I, I guest host on serious and, and that, and I write about music and I'm a musician and those things feed off each other because when I'm on the air, I'm the resident guy who has, I've done it. You know, I've actually done most of the things we're talking about, about rock and roll, it, it, not at the level, you know, I'm not like <laughs> putting myself in league with any of the classic artists. I'm just saying I've experienced, I can, I can talk about these things with it from a different perspective than a guy who's just a DJ. But I also can't do his job. So, that, you know, there's that. But I also think I bring that to the table when I'm writing. If I'm, I write about, I try to write about music with a, with a sense of empathy that I think a lot of my fellow writers, some do, but a lot of them don't have. Or even if they are musicians, they feel like they need to take that hat off and put it on the rack so they can be a proper writer i'm doing bunny ears for the folks at home because they they feel like they need to be they need to not be an advocate or a fan or whatever and i, I don't think that's true yeah well i think um if you'd allow me to i think i I'd, I'd like to call that the end of our first time together and maybe we can get together again some point and do it again because i'd love to talk to you some more i love your point of view um but i really appreciate you making time to do this thank you Thank you so much, Jeff Slate. Thank you, Ann Taylor and the team at Light. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On. Get and share all of our past episodes, write a review, even send us a message through our website, spotlightonpodcast.com. If you like what we're up to here, please leave us a review on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Join us again next week. In the meantime, be safe and stay in touch.